Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, at least I was last time I checked, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our lovely chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a wonderful chat room with some truly great folks that join us each week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. You are so funny. You are still Dr. Eldon Taylor. <laughs> you don't need to check, okay? I check for you. <laughs> Sorry. Oops, cheeky. Yes, of course, do come join us in the chat room. We have loads of fun and a great group of people. There are some great insights to be gained in there. So uh, I do hope that you can join us. That is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash. Last chat. All right. For today's spotlight, I would like you to imagine this. Two groups of people are given identical cigarettes. One group is told the cigarettes are nicotine-free. The brain processes accordingly, and the group who believe the cigarette is nicotine-free show entirely different brain activity. Indeed, the reward pathways that lead to addiction fail to exhibit activity in the group who believes the cigarette is nicotine-free. Can you imagine this? This is much more than the usual placebo. What it suggests is that with these two groups, our beliefs are as powerful as a physical influence. If you read my book, I Believe when what you believe matters, then you shouldn't be surprised when I tell you that these supposed hypothetical groups are in fact very real. Quoting Science News, our research group has begun to show that beliefs are as powerful a physical influence on the brain as neuroactive drugs. The article went on, and I'll quote, Montaigne and his team found that the people who believed they had smoked nicotine cigarettes made different choices and had different neural signals than the other participants, despite the fact that both groups had consumed the same substance. The scientists also found people who believed they had smoked nicotine had significantly higher in their reward learning pathways. Those who did not believe they had smoked nicotine did not exhibit those same signals. Quote, it was the belief alone that modulated activity in the learning pathway, Montaigne said. This goes beyond the placebo effect. Close quote. Now here's the real punchline, and again I'll quote, Nothing is more convincing than how a drug can make you feel differently. A drug can induce a belief state which itself causes the change. Scientists might be able to harness this belief system capable of inducing physiological changes. Close quote. Think about that. Your belief is powerful enough to change your physical reality. Is there a limit? 
My own research has led me to ask this question many times over the past 30 years. I have witnessed people use our healing and immune programs in reverse conditions others had given up on, including cancer. I have letters from folks who suffered from headache pain for years and who found our InterTalk headache program provided relief. I have before and after pictures from a pilot study we conducted a few years ago showing how much participants were able to reverse the appearance of age using our Younging programs. People have stopped smoking, lost weight, gone from clinically depressed to non-depressed, according to the Beck Depression Scale, ameliorated the symptoms of ADHD, lowered their stress levels, eliminated test anxiety, and much more, all in tightly controlled double-blind studies conducted by independent researchers at leading institutions such as Stanford by just changing their self-talk changing their belief using the InterTalk technology. Not only that, the literature is profuse with scholarly papers demonstrating all sorts of changes due only to the power of belief. Imagine what you might change. That's exactly what InterTalk is patented to do, change belief. Turn those limiting self-doubt notions into powerful, positive fundamentals holding up life beliefs that are fully supporting. You all know by now that I close every radio show with this statement. Remember, believing in yourself always matters. There's no more important message that I can convey to you. So, if you haven't before today, be sure to believe in yourself beginning today. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? I think it's really cool how, you know, science comes out with information that You've been teaching yourself for decades now. Well, decades. I think that stuff is cool. But what are you saying? I'm not scientific myself. That we haven't run scientific studies. I know, but you know what I mean. When it's (laughs) independent, it has a whole different standard. But then there's independent work on our stuff too. That's true. But anyway, I still find it really cool, and I get to hear from people all the time. I've been answering the phones a lot more recently and the number of people that tell me you know the changes that happened when they started working with some of the inner talk programs you know it they always sound so surprised <laughs> which i find kind of kind remember of cool. that neuroscience ceu i took and i attended what a couple of years ago now uh where the bottom line really came down to you can change most things the secret is you have to believe you can change yes you do All right, one more piece of business before we get on with our letter segment. A few weeks ago, I challenged all of you to find a cause you could put your weight behind and to act on. Today, I want to offer one such cause, one I think we can all agree upon. Every 20 minutes, a girl is raped in India, and officials often treat it with no more seriousness than that paid to a speeding ticket here in the States. Indeed, There is a new film titled India's Daughter that has been banned from showing in India that tells the story of one young girl who was so brutally gang-raped that her intestines were pulled out. One of the perpetrators states very plainly in the film that a good Indian girl should not fight. They should just lay there and let it happen. And when you see this documentary... 
you'll see that this attitude is held by many. As disgusting as it is, it is really worth looking at. The government of India is doing everything they can to stop this film from being seen anywhere in the world. Instead of stopping the attitude, the wanton rape of its female citizens. They have been partially successful with blocking the film. Even seeing that YouTube pulled it after the BBC, who was scheduled to show the film, and then due to the pressure placed on them by India, released it on YouTube. Well, for a short period until, as I say, they pulled it. We embedded it on our radio page so you can see the full film there. Feel free to share it on your own social networking pages. I encourage you to do that. Now, here's my challenge. Write the government of India and protest their efforts to prevent the world from seeing this documentary. Write our own State Department. Tell them their efforts are disgusting. Things will not change until the entire world shames Indian officials into enforcing the law, changing the attitudes. Rape should never be tolerated. I have provided information on our radio page, ProvocativeEnlightenment.com, that has the details for where to write. Show support for these women. Okay, moving on. I see you want to comment on that. Go ahead quickly. Oh, we have no. a wonderful guest, and I want to get to him. I know. No, it's a really important issue. I would urge everyone just to go to the ProvocativeEnlightenment.com page, and you'll find the information there. And it's important to actually watch. I mean, if you just hear the outlines of the story, yeah, you're horrified. But when you see the details, you get horrified into action, and we have to take action because... We are all connected. For our listening audience, and in all fairness, you were born in, in I India. I was born in India. I totally relate to this entire story and the people and you there. Know, you know what the attitude is. You know how women are treated as chattel um, more often than not. Uh, secondary citizens to the boys and da-da-da-da-da. So is it fair to say that this policy is in... In the attitudes. It's the culture. It is the actual okay. culture itself, and it needs to be changed, and I'm going to be doing what I can okay. to do that. And we'll keep you advised on this show. All right, moving on. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you and paying respect to the very important role you play in making the show successful. Last week our guest was Professor Amy Jill Levine, and we discussed her research in the Bible. Camille wrote, I really want you to know how wonderful your show with Professor Levine was. It cleared so many things up for me. I wish I had known this before leaving the church. Amy wrote, I'm with you, Eldon. Let's go to Tennessee and take classes from her. She is brilliant. R.K. wrote, I love her statement regarding what religion and spirituality should all be about. To help the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That sounds right on to me. Yeah, me too, if the affliction for the comfortable is not what happened to Job, but rather, you know, <laughs> continue to strive to do a better job. Evelyn wrote, thank you so much for having Amy Jill Levine on the show today. She is one of my favorite authors and biblical scholars. Hearing her voice and her idea, ideas was so uplifting, thought-provoking, and filled with reverence for our Creator. Bravo. CB remarked, remember all the hooey and posturing over who was going to interpret the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were found? 
talk about protectionism, makes me think that those scholars very well knew how corrupted their religious books are. Having historical knowledge of the time period can really help understand why a story was told a certain way and how the listeners would hear the story. Wish there was more education in this manner for biblical stories. Melody wrote, I love your radio show and appreciate all your wisdom and insights. Blessings and much love to you. Keep shining, my friend. Francis wrote, what a lovely articulate guest. I don't know which I enjoy most, Dr. E, your shows or your CDs. And Wayne wrote, have to admit, Eldon, I've been very skeptical when it comes to the notion of listening to CDs that supposedly change your approach to life via the subconscious mind. But after having your procrastination CD on while sleeping, I've dramatically changed my behavior, and it's even given a boost to my enthusiasm. I have no idea how it works, but I'm so impressed that I ordered five more of your CDs today. Thanks, and I continue to be inspired by your show. Well, thank you, Wayne. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show. And I've really been looking forward to this. You're going to love our guest. The Spiritual Brain, Science and Religious Experience with Dr. Andrew Newberg. During the past year, we have discussed several new studies that have dealt with activity in the brain during religious experience, as well as how some of those experiences can literally rewire the brain. In my book, Mind Programming, an entire section was devoted to what some have called the hardwiring in the brain that in and of itself can produce profound religious experience. The so-called God Helmet, as it's affectionately referred to by some, was used to elicit deeply moving, even ineffable moments. By pulsating very weak, fluctuating magnetic fields, participants reported a sensed presence of God. The Stanley Korn invention soon became almost solely associated with Michael Persinger, who went on to conduct research in the field of neurotheology, the study of neurocorrelations of religion and spirituality. Persinger claimed that many subjects reported mystical experiences and altered states while wearing the God helmet. Several TV documentaries popularized the work despite several failed attempts to replicate Persinger's findings. We'll ask our guest about that today. It seems there are a variety of what I call God juices. In addition to the electrical or the magnetic, don't forget about the chemical. There's no shortage of that either. All right, enter a genuine expert on all of this. Andrew B. Newberg, M.D., is currently the Director of Research at the Myrna Brind Center of Integrative Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital in Philadelphia. He is also a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Radiology at Thomas Jefferson University. His credentials are incredible. He has actively pursued a number of neuroimaging research projects which have included the study of aging and dementia, epilepsy, and other neurological and psychiatric disorders. Dr. Newberg has been particularly involved in the study of mystical and religious experiences 
as well as the more general mind-body relationship in both the clinical and research aspects of his career. His research also includes understanding the physiological correlates of acupuncture therapy, meditation, and other types of alternative treatments. He has taught medical students, undergraduate and graduate students, as well as medical residents about stress management, spirituality and health, and the neurophysiology of religious experience. He is the author of the new book entitled The Metaphysical Mind, Probing the Biology of Philosophical Thought. That's a great read. He is the co-author of the best-selling books, How God Changes Your Brain and Why God Won't Go Away, Brain Science and the Biology of Belief. He is also a co-author of Words Can Change Your Brain and Born to Believe, God's Science and the Origin of Ordinary and Extraordinary Beliefs. And he is also author of Principles of Neurotheology and co-author of The Mystical Mind, Probing the Biology of Belief that both explore the relationship between neuroscience and spiritual experience. Most recently, he has produced a 24-lecture video program entitled The Spiritual Brain for the Teaching Company. I had the great pleasure of just finishing this course, and that's what led to inviting him here. He has presented his work at scientific and religious meetings throughout the world and has appeared on Good Morning America, Nightline, 2020, CNN, and ABC World News Tonight. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Andrew Newberg. Uh, Thank you for having me on your program. It's indeed our pleasure, sir. Now, I must tell you, again, I really enjoyed your great courses. Uh, But before we get into your work, we like to establish three things in our interview. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about yourself. What were you like as a youngster? Were you liked in school? Did you get involved in athletics of any kind? Was religion an important part of your upbringing? I mean, how did you get to where you are today? Uh, Well, I hope I was liked in school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I had a wonderful uh, childhood and uh, upbringing and um, Loved science in school and, and loved uh, thinking about all kinds of things. I also was actually pretty athletic, I suppose, and, and played a lot of sports, still do. Um, but I think I got into all of this uh, mostly because of the questions that I had. I, I always uh, had very detailed and very persistent questions in my own mind about just the nature of reality. I, I was, un- I, I, it didn't make sense to me why people had different belief systems, different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, and I kept feeling, well, there, there must be some way of, of getting at this a little bit more clearly. And so I, I looked into science, and I was fascinated by what, what science had to say about our world, about our brain, about how we experience the world around us. And as I went through college uh, and ultimately into medical school, well, I guess more in college, I, I started to explore other possibilities. I started to look into philosophical ideas, different uh, religious and spiritual belief systems, theology. Uh, I, was, I was not raised in a particularly religious tradition, but always encouraged to explore that part of myself, always encouraged to explore the, the spiritual side of myself. And, um, and so I took courses in, in Buddhist philosophy and, and general philosophy throughout college. 
Uh, all of it kind of came together when I was actually in medical school, when I met two people who both uh, went on to become very important mentors in my life. Uh, one of them was in the field of brain imaging, and I spent a year doing research uh, with this individual, learning how to do brain imaging, looking at all different kinds of disorders, uh, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, and so forth, different psychiatric disorders. And I also started to work with a colleague of mine, who uh, a mentor of mine who became a colleague, uh, on this whole relationship between the brain and our spiritual selves, how we experience religion, God, our different beliefs, different spiritual experiences, mystical experiences. And we were very theoretical about it at the time, so we were just kind of exploring what the possibilities were, but these both happened together in the same year that I was uh, of medical school, and I realized that the theoretical pieces that we were working on could actually now be studied using the neuroimaging science that was now available, and that was what really allowed us to kind of take off and start to explore practices like meditation and prayer, uh, different types of experiences that people have, and, and really develop it into a whole field, a field of neurotheology that allows us to look at what that relationship is. So, so that to me is, I guess, where I come from. Um, the, you know, the message itself to me is, is probably somewhat multifactorial, but I think in its essence, it's how do we look at the relationship between our brain, our mind, and our religious and spiritual selves. What is the relationship? And to me, one of the important elements of that message is that it, I don't look at that as a, as a one-way street. It is not neuroscience telling us about religion or getting rid of religion. It is both sides of the equation telling us about each other. And, and so we have a way of looking at what we can learn uh, from science and how our religious and spiritual ideas may help guide us in terms of understanding our minds, our consciousness, and so forth, and also how science can help us to understand um, the aspects that, that make us religious and spiritual and, and have an impact on all of the belief systems you were mentioning in the uh, earlier part of the program about how powerful all these different beliefs are, and look at that, look at that relationship. And I think, ultimately, in terms of uh, how do we utilize the message this is where uh, so many different approaches come in, uh, perhaps programs, uh, different meditation programs, programs like the ones that you had mentioned uh, that, that you've been involved in, that, um, that affect us, that affect our lives, that can change the way we think, uh, obviously, hopefully for the better, but that we can use in some practical way to apply to our lives, the way we live our lives, the way we think and believe about the world, the way we pursue our spiritual uh, paths, the way we pursue our, our life paths. And, uh, and I think that there is, this is a very, very rich field for exploring all of those kinds of questions. And, and part of the answer is, is that we don't know all of the things that this whole approach can do. And there are many practical applications that are out there that we have really yet to explore and yet to discover, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of those uh, in the program today. Yeah, I, I want to get into great deal, detail about that. Um, you know, I, I think after listening to your course, after reading some of your work, if I had it all to do over again, I'd want to do what you did. I think you're in one of the most exciting areas of research that a person could dedicate their lives to. We have a break. Well, I can't. I, I completely ahead, agree. 
<laughs> we, we have a break coming up in about 25 seconds. But when we come back from the break, I want to ask you about the critics, what some of the critics have to say about this sort of research um, sure. and how you respond to it, as well as how your peers have responded to um you know, the path that you've taken, you can meet with all kinds of resistance, as I'm sure you know, and so we'll explore that when we get back. We're speaking with Professor Andrew Newberg about his life, work, books, and teaching company course. To learn more about Professor Newberg, visit his website at Andrew Newberg. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-N-E-W-B-E-R-G. AndrewNewberg.com. All right, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, But the fact is, magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. 
If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Andrew Newberg about his life, work, books, and teaching comedy course. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some truly special significance, real meaning to them. Music impacts us all in many ways. It can awaken memories and has even restored consciousness to coma patients. Music affects our attention, memory performance, and our choices in music have been linked to personality traits. So there can be a good deal of self-disclosure present in the selection of one's favorite music. Okay, we just played Hotel California, performed by the Eagles. Why is this one special to you, Professor Newberg? And how does it tell us about who you are? Oh, well, I guess it, uh, on one hand, it was a song that I grew up with. It was uh, out at the time that I was in my uh, kind of mid-childhood, uh, early teen years. And um, uh, so, one, it always kind of brings me back to that. But I guess I always thought that it has this kind of mysterious nature to it about um, growing and, and kind of, the, again, the nature of reality. And I think that that was always what triggered something in me that kind of how do we uh, how do we think about our reality and, and what happens when uh, we really sort of have trouble escaping the ways in which we think about the world, which we believe about the world, and uh, and how can we try to get beyond sort of our, our everyday ways of thinking about the world and try to get to something which is more fundamental and more, more real for us. So I think that's kind of where that song that always sort of takes me and, and uh, that, that mysteriousness of it, the mysteriousness of our reality and the way in which our brain processes through and tries to experience that reality. That's uh, it's definitely an interesting... I mean, I like the music. It has a wonderful sound to it. I, I, I have to ask you, uh, how do you define Colitis, you know, in the first uh, line of the song? <laughs> you know... Um, <laughs> You know, I I think, as I recall it, it's not really a clearly defined word, <laughs> and uh, I, I think it sort of re- refers to a little bit of a uh, of an alcoholic drink. But um, uh, I, I think um, uh, I, I've recall, I recall trying to look it up at one point, and uh, them saying that it wasn't really a clear clear word that they had in mind as they were using it, or at least what it, what it really meant in the context of the song. And, and I guess that was part of what I always liked about it, was that there was concepts that really weren't clearly defined, and then, uh, you know, you had to think about what it really meant. And In fact, I remember hearing uh, them interview the, the band about the song, and, and that's kind of what they said, that uh, people said, well, what does it mean? And they said, well, you know, our job is to put it out there, and it's your job to interpret it and think about it, so... Yeah, well, it definitely is an ambiguous song. It's one of those that goes down in the history book with many of them saying it's satanic and, and right. you know, and all those <laughs> folks saying, no, it's not that at all. And, and mm-hmm. Kalidas, I mean, I look too, uh, you're, the best I, the closest I could come to find, I mean, you can find that word in some Spanish menus, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, um, to find it, I was never able to. So, all yeah, right, exactly. listen, the, before the break, uh, yeah. I suggested to you I wanted to speak to you about what some of the critics say. Sure. Um, you, you know, Michael Shermer's been on the show, and, and he's a pretty adamant critic of a lot of this stuff. 
Uh, at the same time, I have to admit that Shermer did say on this show, and I don't know if you know this or not, uh, Professor, but at one time he was a devout evangelist going door to door, missionizing. Right. Um, and, and you, you know, university and uh, the secular, uh, you know, environment that we often meet in the university kind of, you know, changed all that for him. But bottom line, he said he wouldn't be doing anything different. He, he felt that our duty was to our, our family and to our community and to our nation and do the best that we could with our lives. So I suppose it doesn't matter what you believe if you live the best that you can. But with that said, uh, He's quick to point out that the brain does not perceive itself. It imputes mental activity, and therefore what we impute as spiritual is really only an extension of a psychology that needs to believe there is more. In, in other words, we're unable to accept the finality of death. Please flesh out for us why you believe we have a spiritual brain and how you answer this sort of criticism. Well, I guess that's a pretty complicated question. Um, you know, I guess part of the answer to the question is that, um, you know, when, when you look at what spirituality is for people, it, it often is many different kinds of things. And, uh, and I think sometimes when people criticize religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs, part of the problem with the criticism sometimes is the fairly narrow ways uh, in which people actually try to define these concepts. In fact, one of my favorite exercises that I do with students and uh, people when I give talks and so forth is to write up on, on a board, you know, the word spirituality, the words religion. I say, now tell me what, what this means to you. And we go through this whole exercise for 20 minutes or a half hour, and it's fascinating to watch uh, how the different definitions kind of weave in and out, and people say, well, this is, you know, one, spirituality is one thing and religion is something else, and then somebody else says, wait a minute, no, it's the other way around. Um, so sometimes when people are critical uh, about religious and spiritual beliefs, it's sometimes because they come at it with a very specific idea about what religion is, and then they say, well, that, you know, that doesn't work. Um, so if if one makes the statement that, well, spirituality is this, is our brain striving to understand um, something more or, or it's because of we're afraid of death, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, sometimes that is part of the reason why people go and have spiritual uh, practices and, and engage in religion. But on the other hand, when you talk to people who are religious and spiritual, a lot of times they'll tell you that that, that really doesn't have anything to do with it at all. And certainly when people have spiritual experiences, a lot of times the concept of death, for example, um, is really not part of it uh, in any way. Uh, on the other hand, um, the notion of connecting to something greater than the self is a fairly common concept. But um, as as people point out, uh, appropriately so, that sense of being connected to something may be very fundamental to who we are as human beings. And I think that that is part of, it goes back to your other part of the question about why is spirituality a part of us. Um, as human beings, physically, biologically, we are connected to the universe. So the universe is something bigger than ourselves that we have to find some way of interacting with and connecting. Now, whether that sum total of the universe is purely material, as we would interpret in science, uh, or whether there is something which goes beyond the material, something which is consciousness or even something which is supernatural, um, whatever is out there, then our brain is most likely going to want to try to find ways of reconnecting with that and finding it and trying to identify and, and define it for 
each given individual. So when I talk about our brains wanting to be spiritual and, and trying to engage it, I think it does derive out of our out of our questioning, out of our striving to kind of transcend ourselves, to, to connect with our world uh, in different ways than we typically think about in our everyday reality type of experience. And, and I think when we try to do that, we come up with a variety of different kinds of ways of understanding it. And, uh, you know, some of my, some of my favorite, uh, you know, uh, thinkers have been scientists who describe the universe and our connection to that universe in what otherwise appear to be very spiritual kind of ways, even though they would tell you that they're not spiritual. Um, so, so I think that the, uh, ultimately our spiritual selves um, become a very complex component of who we are and how we focus on it, how we engage it, how we think about it, how we experience it can be very different. In fact, uh, this is part of some of the new work that I've been involved with, which is to try to survey thousands of people to understand what these experiences really are about, how they affect us, and what are the elements and components that make them up. So we're trying to use our science to better understand what that relationship is ultimately all about. You know, my homework tells me, Professor, that you are personally a spiritual person. And I'm not going to ask you to confirm that, but but I also know that you've done a lot of work where you've looked at uh, the impact of religion on individual, on society, in terms of um, their level of happiness, their life expectancy, da-da-da-da-da. Sam Harris stated, I'll quote, Our world is dangerously riven by religious doctrines that all educated people should condemn, and yet there is more to understanding the human condition than science and secular culture generally admit. Uh, what do you think? I mean, first of all, are are the religious doctrines that the world deals with, are these doctrines more hurtful than they are harmful? And, and second of all, do you believe then that it is uh, the necessity that we connect, as you say, with the greater, the world that we're a part of, that gives rise to metaphysical uh, propositions and therefore the whole area of religion and spirituality? Well, you know, with regard to your first question, uh, I think that there certainly uh, the, the criticism is well taken when we look around and we see so many examples in today's world and going back throughout history, we find that certain religious beliefs are at least utilized to inflict some type of of harm uh, or or kill someone who doesn't believe the same way that we do. Um, and And there can often be many different ways in which religious and spiritual beliefs can ultimately have an, a very negative impact. And so when people point out that negative side of religion and spirituality, of course, of course it's there, and it's something that is very important, I think, for us to understand. Again, this gets back to why I think this whole field of, of neurotheology is so essential, because maybe we have an opportunity to be able to explore what's going on in the brain of somebody when they utilize their religious and spiritual beliefs for something negative, for creating fear and hatred and anger and violence. Uh, on the other hand, Religious and spiritual beliefs also can create great compassion, great understanding, uh, a, a, a system of morals that can create cohesive societies. In fact, 
uh, archaeologically, there's some evidence now that that religious beliefs predated civilizations to the extent that perhaps civilizations arose around the religious beliefs. So in many ways, the very fact that we're here, um, may it may have been fundamental to humanity to have these religious and spiritual beliefs as a way of creating cohesive societies and, and, and allowing us to survive in our world and interact with each other in effective ways and uh, pr- providing a sense of, of comfort, a sense of compassion, sense of forgiveness, a sense of morals that is essential for us as human beings. Now, do you have to have religion to have a sense of morals? Of course not. Um, There are many different approaches that people may take. But I think ultimately what we see as, as, as human beings are both of these sides. We see the positive and the compassionate side. We see the, the angry and the hateful side, and, and this has been a theme throughout many of my books about how do we foster the positive side, how do we try to engage that positive side, that compassionate side of who we are, and for those people who are religious and spiritual, um, they can turn to those components of those belief systems, those doctrines which espouse compassion and love and, and charity and forgiveness, uh, and, and hopefully turn away from the more negative beliefs and and doctrines that can also be a part of those belief systems. So I don't know if religious and spiritual beliefs are really, I mean, in many ways, I think they really are just an extrapolation of who we are as human beings. We we have the anger and the fear and the hate within us. We have the love and the compassion and the forgiveness within us. And it's always a battle. Uh, Ultimately, it's the emotions and the approaches that we try to pursue and try to emulate that become a part of who we are. If we always focus on the negative and on the hateful, then that's going to be the kind of person we become. If we focus our minds and, and our lives on the compassionate and the loving, then that becomes the person who we are. And that, that's part of how the brain works. So, so I think, ultimately, while I certainly concur with the concerns about what religion and, and in particular and, and certain traditions have, have espoused, I think the ability to bring together science and the religious and spiritual uh, becomes a very powerful tool for helping us to understand where these discrepancies come from, where the negative side comes from, where the positive side comes from, and hopefully that will provide us some some guidelines into how we may redirect people or direct people into those more positive ways of being. Okay. I have to ask you this. You prompted this. Do you believe, Professor, that your work, and I don't just mean the research in the lab, but the way you articulate the findings, the way you share it, can educate a world to where the world can at some point in time separate itself from this idea that, well, let me digress just a little bit. I have said there is no such thing as a war without God. You must have God in order to go to war. Uh, people are not going to lay down their lives to, you know, without serving some higher purpose, and it seems to always be God. So it seems to me that the only way that you're ever going to change that is through education. Did I understand you then, now coming back, to, to imply that through the work that you're doing, we may well come to a point where we are educated enough that we're able to separate those passions attached 
to religion from the activities that we otherwise abhor? Uh, I, I certainly hope that that would something like that might be the case that we we can through this kind of knowledge, this kind of information, find ways of of separating ourselves from those very negative sides, and you know whether or not uh, people again can kind of redirect the ways in which they think and feel and approach the world to a more uh, perhaps a spiritual place, a less uh, uh, perhaps a less um, God-centered place or a less religious-centered place, if that ultimately is what it takes to to get to that state, then there, you know, these are the kinds of things that we may ultimately learn, and and we might be able, you know, your statement about God and war. I mean, is there is there a way to evaluate that, and is there a way to understand that? And uh, if that turns out to be the case, then what do we what do we need to do about it? Um, so. So to me, I mean, I'm always to, to one of the, the fundamental features of everything that I try to do, I like to refer to as a passion for inquiry, which is the passion to always ask questions and to think through what the possibilities are, to think through what the answers may be and how we may use those answers in the future in some kind of positive way. But yes, I, I think ultimately, the more we learn, the more we know, um, then that will hopefully be something that is beneficial to everyone, uh, irrespective of whether they are religious or not. All right, Professor, let's 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 get more directly into your work. I, I appreciate very much your comments. Tell us about the role science has historically had, and still plays in the exploration of spirituality. And please explain, you know, for our audience, this entire new field of neurotheology. Well, I think. When you go back historically, uh, it's interesting that there really is precedent for the notion of blending together a kind of objective uh, or scientific approach to the world along with a spiritual one. Certainly, when you read uh, Buddhist texts, for example, there is, there's a whole science in there, if you will, of consciousness, of the mind, of our emotions. I mean, now obviously they didn't have the scientific ability. This is two, two three thousand years ago, so they didn't have the benefit of randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials and functional MRI machines. But um, but there was there was an approach. There was this understanding of who we were and who we are as human beings, and how we can try to learn about that, and how we can use that information in a way that brings us past our suffering. Uh, even even in the Western traditions, I think that there is certainly this notion about how the human person works, uh, what are our limitations, what are our abilities, and how we might be able to utilize those abilities to the most uh, to, to become the best kind of a person that we can be. Now, you know, fast forward two thousand years, and here we are today. Uh, we never had the ability to look into the human brain until the last twenty years or so. So. To me, this whole field of neurotheology, which is something that is, is really quite recent, is talking about how we can more deeply understand what this relationship is. And for me, um, I don't feel that neurotheology is something that needs to get rid, of, certainly, of science and, and or of the religious and spiritual side. I think we need to try to learn and, and figure out the most effective ways of understanding what this relationship is between our brain and that spiritual part of people's lives. So um, we can do imaging studies, and we can look at what goes on in the brain when people uh, do a practice like meditation or prayer. We can 
survey people and ask them what their beliefs are, what their experiences are, what their feelings are. We can look at the potential impact on our overall health and well-being, on our societies, on our cultures, and so forth, and uh, and figure out how uh, how all of these different ideas and all these different beliefs are related to each other. But by bringing in this scientific perspective, we bring in a new perspective that just really hasn't been able to be there until the last 20 years or so. And I think that, to me, enriches the dialogue, enriches the discussion, teaches us things, uh, and, and hopefully that type of information will be useful in getting us to kind of the, the bigger questions about who we need to be as human beings, what's the nature of our reality, uh, and how do, we be, how do we become the most positive, the most effective, the most compassionate types of, of individuals we can be, how do we look at our world and create our world in a more positive way? So um, I, I think that there is, uh, to me, neurotheology has a lot of potential. I mean, we're really just at the very beginning stages. We're just scratching the surface here. Um, and we have the ability to truly learn so much about how our minds work, how our brains work, how our consciousness works, uh, and how that relates to us as human beings. So uh, there's, to me, there is just so much for us to look at, and that, to me, is where neurotheology ultimately can go as a field. Now, obviously, will it? I don't know. I certainly hope it does. But, um, but again, to me, I think that there's just so many opportunities for us to learn and explore, and that's what I hope that we can accomplish ultimately. All right. We have about 90 seconds before our next break, and I, and I want our audience to have an idea about when you speak of the correlates, the kind of research that you conduct and the kinds of findings you have. So, you know, let's let's discuss a very specific um, set of brain scans that you ran on Franciscan nuns. Um, I would have you set that up for us, if you will, and maybe 60 seconds, we'll go to break, and then you can flesh it out when we get back. Sure. Well, that, that was one of our early studies, and what we did were brain scans to look at changes in the brain's activity, particularly uh, changes in the brain's blood flow, which is a good marker of activity. And we asked the nuns to come in, we scanned their brains at rest, and then we asked them to do a, a kind of meditative prayer called centering prayer, which uh, can induce a very powerful experience in the individual. And we had them do this prayer. We scanned their brains again, and then we were able to see what are the exact areas of the brain that seem to be involved in these kinds of practices that elicit the kinds of experiences, these very powerful spiritual experiences that the nuns have. And I think it had very deep implications. Right there. We'll keep everybody bated breath till we come back and you can tell them what you found. Listen, the book, The Metaphysical Mind Probing the Biology of Philosophical Thought, you want to get at the course. And I can't recommend this too highly. The Spiritual Brain from the Teaching Company. If you'd like to know more about Professor Andrew Newberg and and his work, visit his website at andrewnewberg.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break of the professor discussing God and the brain. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. 
Inner talk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor Andrew Newberg about God, religion, and the brain. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Closer to the Heart by Rush. Please tell us, why is this one special to you? Well, that was also, uh, I guess, one a song that I grew up listening to, and um, uh, as the listeners heard, it's about reality, it's about making a new reality and, and encouraging everyone, including the people who hold the highest places, uh, which I'm sure we certainly could use these days to come up with a new way of thinking about things, something that is a bit closer to the heart, something that's more compassionate and understanding. And um, it's certainly uh, a hope of mine that we can find our way to, to that type of uh, thinking, and hopefully someday we will, and uh, hopefully the world will be uh, if I could be so optimistic, uh, a, a much better place at that point. But um, but we still have a ways to go, it looks like. And when the song concludes, you say amen. Yeah, for absolutely. Sure. For sure, for <laughs> sure, for sure. Okay, we left everybody with bated breath. Tell us, what did you find in the scans of the Franciscan nuns? Well, when we looked at the scans of the nuns, we saw a couple of particular areas that seem to be involved in the practice and ultimately the experience. And one of them was the frontal lobes. The frontal lobes are right behind our forehead. And this is an area of the brain that gets turned on whenever we focus our attention on different things. We focus our attention on where we're driving, solving a problem. So when a person is engaged in a practice like prayer or meditation, especially one that involves deep contemplation and focus, we would expect the frontal lobes to become activated, and that's exactly what we did find in, in the nuns. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting about the frontal lobes being involved is that as more research has come out over the past 10 years, 
people are finding out that the frontal lobes also help to regulate our emotional responses. They help to uh, kind of control our very aggressive and angered responses. In fact, some people have even argued that certain parts of the frontal lobe are involved in our sense of compassion and how we direct our compassion and our behaviors in a positive way towards other people. So I think it's interesting that practices like meditation and prayer may actually have an effect on the way in which that compassionate side of the brain actually works. The other area of our brain that was involved with the nuns was an area of the brain called the parietal lobe, and this is located in the back of our brain. This is an area of our brain that takes a lot of our sensory information and essentially tries to help us to create our sense of self and how that self relates to the world. So this to me was very interesting. In fact, uh, as I mentioned, what we saw was a decrease of activity in this area of the brain. And if this area normally is helping us to kind of establish our sense of self, then a decrease of activity would theoretically be associated with a loss of that sense of self. Well, this is interesting because this is exactly what people describe in these intense practices of meditation and prayer. They begin to lose their sense of self. They begin to lose their sense of space and time as they relate to the world. And they feel this intimate connectedness, a sense of oneness. A lot of the terms that people have heard over the years that is associated with profound spiritual states, profound meditative states. And so uh, it was something that we had hoped to find, but was something that we actually did look at and find in not only the nuns, but in other people who have done similar kinds of practices, a, a drop of activity, a decreased activity in this orienting part of the brain. And I think that that's helping us more and more to understand how these practices have an impact on us and how they tell us something about the nature of what these experiences are and, and how that ultimately gets manifested in the, in the belief system of that individual. All right. Now, I'm going to ask you a metaphysical, a philosophical question that's going sure. to draw upon your opinion uh, as much as anything else. Uh, the parietal lobe, we, you know, we have that associated with a sense of of oneness. Um, the, the question comes, there are areas of the brain that you can stimulate directly and they produce a religious experience. Um, there are areas of the brain that give rise to experiences such as you just described, the feeling of oneness, and they can be artificially produced as well. So the question it is... Is this organization of the brain, this sense of uh, how we find spirituality in our brain, um, is, is that, in your view, something that is a mechanism, um, a Darwinian mechanism to further the survivability of the species, is bringing us together, you know, in collective groups and organizing civilizations, as you pointed out already, or are they there because a creator place them there to ensure that we're able to acknowledge a deeper meaning in life. Your opinion, sir. Well, I hope you don't find this as a cop-out, but I, I don't know. And, and either is possible. Um, so, you know, what, the, the story of the nuns, one of the stories... I, I'm asking you as a person, Professor. Yeah, not, I, not, I, not as a scientist. I understand. And, uh, and, and we again, won't I, take cop-outs here. <laughs> you, you might have to in this case. I, let me just—I mean, let me tell you this this part of the story, which I think it may help to answer your question. But okay. um, 
when I when I showed the picture of the scans to the nun, and she said, "This is great. You know, this this shows me why my religion is so important. It shows me how I connect with God." And for her, it just completely supported her belief system. Uh, a few weeks later, after the paper that we published came out, I got a call from the person who was the head of the local atheist society, and the person said to me. This is great. You know, this shows to me that uh, that uh, that God and religion is nothing more than a manifestation of the brain. Mm-hmm. And as I reflected on all of this, I realized that that the beliefs that we hold are what shape how we interpret this information. But from a scientific perspective, all it's really showing you is what goes on in the brain when the person has that experience. And how it got there, it doesn't show that either. And that's why I say, I, I mean, again, I, I apologize for the cop-out, but I really don't know. And again, that's part of why uh, I, I engage this whole field of neurotheology, because maybe this may not have been the study to show that, but maybe there is a way of finding a study that will help us to show it more specifically and to get at the question that you asked about, about why this is here. I mean, certainly we can come up with explanations from an evolutionary perspective that makes sense. And as you said, I mean, it, it may help to help us to connect to our world, to create cohesive societies. Um, and one can certainly understand from a purely evolutionary perspective why this might be in the brain. If you are a religious and spiritual person and, and believe deeply in God, well, of course it makes sense that it's in the brain, that, that the brain has this ability to connect with God. And that's why, you know, it goes back to the title of one of my early books called Why God Won't Go Away. Whether you are an atheist or a religious person, it's in there. And it's in there for whatever the reasons, but it's in there. And and that, to me, is what ultimately is more important, that we understand that it's in there, and we try to understand how it being in there plays out in our lives. And, and hopefully we can use that information to take advantage of it, to deepen our understandings and our belief systems. But again, you know, it goes back to your question about the criticisms. A person like a Michael Shermer who comes in and has a very negative view about these types of belief systems is going to come away with, you know, any time a study is, is done that has anything positive to say about religion, that it's going to be a bad study, that it's not well done, that there's problems with the data. Um, studies that have a more negative spin on religion, that those are the good studies. And then a religious person is going to do just the opposite. So, and, and that was pr- what prompted one of our other books on beliefs about how our belief systems alter and affect the way in which we view reality, alter the way in which we think about whatever piece of data we look at. And, uh, and so, for me, this is why I do this, because I'm looking for that answer to the, the question that you asked. Um, all right, I'm going to accept that. I'm not going to push you any further. <laughs> but that is an erudite cop-out. That's what it is, <laughs> Professor. Okay. I've been working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's flip the coin over. Yeah. Uh, if the brain's hardwired the way it is, and, and, and you know, and I'm on record as stating, you know, a person has to learn to be an atheist or an agnostic based on how it's wired. And you, you mentioned Michael again. It, you know, it was his secular environment. He admits it, it, the the way science, way he, the way he was taught science that. Right dissuaded him from any spiritual connection if you will okay right he doesn't claim to be an atheist he and i agree with him you know an atheist how can you say you're an atheist that that insists that you can prove and and you can't 
disprove God. You can't make Either. it prove right, exactly. God. So you got to be an agnostic. But but bottom right. line is this: if since we're hardwired the way we are, Professor Newberg, why are there non-believers? Well, that's a very important question. Um, it, there is a couple of, and there are a couple of answers for that. So, first of all, um, when we look at any quality of being human, we find a range, and and so even though I would argue that um, that our brain is set up for these kinds of spiritual pursuits and experiences. Um, there's going to be, to some degree, a bell curve or some type of curve where there's going to be a lot of people who feel and believe in religious and spiritual beliefs, but there's always going to be those individuals who don't. And it may, and again, this is another new area of study where people are starting to look at that and trying to understand what is the difference between someone who turns to religion and versus somebody who does not turn to religion. But I would also, I would also go on to argue that even those people who say that they don't believe in God, um, and, and I mean, I understand that they don't believe in God, but that they, but they do have some of the same basic experiences and feelings and beliefs that religious people do. It's just that they're not directed at religion per, uh, itself. So, for example, a person who says that they don't believe in God, they still might look at the universe as being this intimately interconnected thing that we are a part of and that they feel very a very powerful feeling when they feel that connection, when they, when they see that new scientific insight that teaches them something different about the world. So, uh, and, and ultimately... As you mentioned, I mean, none of us know exactly what's going on out there. I mean, all of us, I've always argued that we are fundamentally trapped inside of our own brains, looking out at, at a, an infinite universe, trying to do the best job that we can at understanding it. And so none of us know for sure what's going on. All of us construct beliefs, uh, spiritual beliefs, non-spiritual beliefs, political beliefs, moral beliefs, beliefs about relationships, about everything that we hope works. And to some degree, we hope is accurate. But because we never know, we're really all in the same boat in terms of how our brain constructs that sense of reality for us. So I think that all of our brains are really doing the same kinds of things. Some people, the answer comes to them in, in a spiritual way and, or in a religious way, and that's what makes the most sense to them. But there are some people, uh, people like Michael Shermer, for example, who because of their brains because of their the environment that they were in come to a different conclusion is it right or wrong you know i don't i don't think so i mean i don't know i, I to me i always like the um the, the the old analogy about you know asking a bunch of flies buzzing around an elephant what an elephant is and and one of them says it's a trunk and one of them says it's a foot and one of them says it's a tail well they're all right and they're also all wrong so our brain is going to miss a lot of things about the world it's going to be very limited in what we can know about the world and and this gets back to why I say I think we all have to have a passion for inquiry. I don't think any of us should have too much confidence in the ways in which we believe because we're all of us just have a, a brain that's doing the best job that it can looking at an infinite universe and trying to make some kind of sense out of it. And, and the fact that we can do it at all is incredible. Um, and that's part of why we get so sensitive about it because it's, it is pretty tenuous. And so when somebody tells us that we're wrong, 
that makes us feel very anxious and we don't like that. And so a lot of times we fight back. And then the question is, can we embrace that that sense of doubt, that sense of, of mystery, that sense of wonder in a positive way and help other people to see it as well? All right. I'm going to say, I mean, you, you've tempted me too much. I'm not going to avoid this one. I, I, go for it. I don't like us to go political, but here we go. I've seen okay. several studies now that point to the differences between the brains of liberals and the brains of conservatives, and they have their different interpretations. What differences, if any, have you observed by way of the differences between the brains of religious and non-religious folks, and... Can you correlate that? I mean, you know, uh, there are liberals who point at the conservatives and say such things as their gods and their guns. Is there a correlation? Well, you know, again, uh, it goes back to your a little bit of your other question, too, about well, why do people not believe? I mean, are, there are people who are very liberal who are non-religious, and there are people who are very liberal who are uh, devoutly religious, and vice versa. Um in terms of the conservative, but there tends to be certain mentalities that run together. Now, we have documented some differences uh, in the brain of people who have engaged in these kinds of spiritual practices for very, very long periods of time. Uh, One of the areas of the brain that seems to be different in them compared to those people who have not uh, is an area of the brain called the thalamus, and this is a very central structure in the brain. It brings in a lot of our sensory information up into the brain. It helps different parts of our brain communicate with each other. Some people have argued that the thalamus is the seat of consciousness. It's the way, it's the part of us that kind of formulates our reality and formulates who we are as as human beings. So the fact that there's a difference there, uh, to me, is very striking and very important in terms of why people look at their realities differently. Now, there's another kind of big part of the question uh, that's part of what you were asking, which is, so is somebody more correct or, you know, more right or more wrong? And this is where the data becomes very interesting, because some people have tried to show, for example, that the religious people are not as smart, for example, as those people who, who are religious. But there's been some very interesting studies. Part of the problem is, is how you ask the questions and how you, and how you test for things. So one of my favorite studies is a study that, that looked at people who are religious and non-religious and showed them pictures that were purposely blurred so that it was hard to make out what was in the picture. When they showed them to religious individuals, the religious people saw the things that were really there, maybe a face or something like that, but often saw things that weren't really there. And that's interesting because obviously for those people who are atheists, a religious person is is thinking or seeing something that isn't really there. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when you show these pictures to non-religious people, they never see things that aren't there, but sometimes they don't see things that are there. So both groups are missing reality or, or, or altering the way in which they see reality. They don't see it perfectly. And they both make mistakes. They just make them in different ways. And that, to me, may be kind of the ultimate answer to this question, which is that the brains probably are different. There's some evidence about different areas of the brain and maybe even some neurotransmitters that may be different between those people who are very religious people versus those who are not. But the question then becomes, is, is, is one person more right than the other? And unfortunately or fortunately, the data isn't clear on that. And we may never really know who really has the better view of what the world is all about. Maybe it is better when we see things that that we don't readily see, because maybe they really are there and we just don't happen to see them. Uh, And of course, 
that's been the basis of science as well. I mean, some of the greatest scientific achievements are studying in quantum mechanics and studying the things that we can't see. So the fact that our brain can see things and think about things that we can't physically see or touch uh, could be a very, very important thing for what our brain can do to help us understand the world, whether we're scientific or whether we are religious. It may state a potential that's yet undeveloped. Uh, yes. Let me ask you this. There's some evidence uh, that mind's not a local event. And if that's so, it rather dashes the idea that mind's only a mechanical representation of the brain. A lot of your work is about the mechanical representation of the brain. How do you see the mind and the brain in this duality argument, sir? Well, I mean, this is something that I am very excited about. And also, again, another area where I think neurotheology may tell us something about. You, you bring up a very, very important issue about, so where is consciousness in all of this, and, and where is the material world in all of this? We have some fundamentally problematic issues scientifically uh, as well as spiritually when we address these kinds of questions. If we, if we start looking at our world from a purely materialistic perspective, how do we explain what consciousness is? I mean, obviously people in cognitive neuroscience say, well, it's in the brain. But we, don't, we haven't been able to find it yet. Now, maybe someday we will, but at the moment we haven't. And there are some good reasons to think that we may have trouble finding it because the consciousness is within us to begin with as scientists. So it may be very difficult to discover what consciousness actually is and where it exists within the material processes of the human brain. Uh, on the other hand, if you come from a more Buddhist perspective, for example, the notion that consciousness is this non-local phenomenon, that it is out there in the world, that it is something that our brain taps into, but it isn't something which is produced, per se, by the human brain. Well, again, I mean, there's no data that really supports or denies either of those kinds of interpretations. And at this point, um, an explanation of the world starting with consciousness to me, is every bit as valid as an explanation of the world starting with the material reality. We don't know which of them is really primary, uh, whether there may be just two different sides of the same coin. Uh, so we still have to figure this out. But why I like neurotheology is that it's these very powerful experiences that affect our consciousness, uh, these meditative states where our consciousness is altered, where we, uh, where people have the experience of touching this kind of consciousness plane, which is somehow outside of our human brain and our human mind, if we can then link that back to what's going on in the brain when people have that experience, maybe we'll learn something about what that experience is and what that perception of reality is. Maybe it'll tell us a little bit more about what the real nature of reality is and whether we can rely purely on a scientific materialistic perspective or whether we have to bring in a much more integrated blend of what we can see and experience from a spiritual or religious perspective and what science ultimately has to say about our world. So I think there are hopefully some fascinating things for us to learn about when we get into this whole discussion about uh, what consciousness actually is and whether it is just localized to the human brain, whether it goes beyond the brain, and if so, how does that all happen? Is it that our own consciousness can reach out across the divide and touch something, or is the consciousness already out there and our brain just taps into it. And, uh, at this moment, we don't know, but this is certainly a very important question for all of us to, to continue to look at. Absolutely. In your lecture, the Great Courses series, you speak about uh, Fowler's stages of faith. 
We have a break coming up. When we come back, I'd like you to flesh out for us uh, those stages of faith and provide the advantages that might be gained from some seeking to develop uh, more spirituality in their life. All right. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back after these few brief messages from those people that love us and support us. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor Andrew Newberg about his research regarding our spiritual brain. His book, The Metaphysical Mind, Probing the Biology of Philosophical Thought, you're going to want to get. It's a great read. And I cannot recommend anything higher than his course, 24-lecture video program, The Spiritual Brain. And you can find that at greatcourses.com. You hear their spots on our radio program every week. It is a great way to spend 30 to 45 minutes a day. And um, I guarantee you, it's time so well invested. You've got to drive. You're going somewhere. You, uh, you have that extra time you know, invested in yourself. This is a great way to do it. All right, in this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. 
And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor, we just played your third choice, the Beatles singing Let It Be. Uh, I think everybody can intuit at this point in time why that's important to you, but go ahead, tell us. I was just going to say, it kind of says it uh, just in the words itself, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the notion, uh, to me, it was also very meaningful as kind of the, I guess it was probably not their final song, but one of the songs that kind of came out uh, just as they were ending uh, their their run, and um uh, but I think the idea of it as a sense of uh, a concept of wisdom, and that to me is also very important. The notion that we that we strive for something that's a little bit more than just what we know, but something that we can understand in a very deep and meaningful way that changes the way we think about things and hopefully makes the world a better place. And so, uh, letting it be, I think, is is certainly one element to that. But um, but really trying to find our way towards a more compassionate side of who we are as human beings, to me, is, is what a lot of the goal of this type of work is also all about. All right. Before the break, um, I suggested that I was going to ask you, so please unpack for us Fowler's Stages of Faith and how, you know, what someone might gain as a result of seeking to develop more spirituality in their life. Well, uh, for, for those who aren't uh, familiar, so James Fowler wrote a book uh, back in the 80s called Stages of Faith and uh, really tried to outline how the human person develops spiritually from the, the moment of birth as an infant uh, all the way through adolescence and into adulthood. And um, I, I was involved in a conference where we were looking at how, uh, how adolescents uh, come to the various issues that they have to face and how we might be able to help them through that. So we started to look at this question not just from a spiritual perspective, but from a biological one as well. And I was actually uh, somewhat surprised, I suppose, at how well our own brain's development matches very well the spiritual development that Fowler was talking about. So, you know, for example, as, as a child, when you're in that age range of about six to eight years old, that's a time where the brain is the most active in our lifetime. And part of why it's so active is, is that our brain has made so many different connections, many of which are kind of, quote-unquote, wrong. They're not the, real, the right way of thinking about things, or at least the way we're taught to think about things. So we start to make all kinds of very weird inferences. We, you know, sometimes people think God is in the toaster oven or something. You know, uh, and and so, so children wind up having very, what to an adult, seem to be unusual kinds of beliefs but nonetheless, to the child, make a lot of sense to them because of how their brain is developing. And then, of course, as we get into our adolescence, our, our brain processes are starting to mature. We start to think about things in more um, specific ways and in more rational ways, but we're also at that time of life bringing in a lot of our emotions and our hormones. So we see uh, not just the kind of development of ideas, but the support of those ideas with a lot of emotions. And that's part of what sometimes goes wrong for people, and you look around in the world and you see things like ISIS, for example, recruiting a lot of young people, people in adolescence, very early adulthood, because their brains haven't fully kind of settled down yet. They're coming up with these ideas and beliefs, but they're being flamed by a lot of very powerful emotions. And then as we enter into our older adulthood, our beliefs become consolidated, and as our brain functions actually begin to deteriorate, we start to see an ability to kind of think across very 
firm doctrinal kind of lines that we may have thought about when we were younger, and we start to have a more universalizing way of believing about things. Now, I mean, the, uh, part of what's important in this whole concept is that uh, that we can get stuck in any of these phases of development, so it's not a necessary development that we go through all these different stages. And going to your primary question with regard to this, how do we use this? Well, I think part of the answer to that is the recognition of what these stages are and how do we cultivate some of these more sort of later stages of development, those that are more universalizing, those that that tend to recognize the limitations of our beliefs that help to foster a sense of compassion. Uh, You know, to me, one of the things that I have learned so much from my research as I've studied hundreds of people's brains who have different types of religious and spiritual beliefs is that it's really given me a great appreciation for all the different beliefs that people hold, those people who are religious, those people who aren't, and those people who are religious but of different faiths. And and what I've come to realize is that, uh, something that I was talking about a little earlier, about how, you know, our brain is really trapped, we're really trapped within our brain, and we are then looking out on the world and trying to make sense of that world, and we come to all different kinds of conclusions. So from where I sit... I have a great appreciation for all the different conclusions that people have come to. And so part of the development process, I think, is this notion of coming to a better sense of understanding about why people have come to different belief systems, different conclusions than than what we may have come to, being open to them, being compassionate about them, and trying to develop that more universalizing kind of faith. And I think part of what also goes into that are engaging in practices and approaches that lead to that. So practices like meditation, different types of prayer practices that foster that more uh, compassionate side of ourselves. And, and that, to me, again, is still very important because as we talk about brain development, uh, part of how our brain develops depends on what our brain is doing at any given time. And the more, there's a, there's a cute phrase that the neurons that fire together wire together, that the more we engage one way of thinking, the more that gets written into the neural connections of our brain, the more that becomes our beliefs and our behavior. So if we focus on hatred and anger and negativity, those are the neural connections that form, those are the connections that strengthen, and that becomes the way we are as a person. If, on the other hand, we get redirected into a more compassionate, more forgiving, more loving perspective, then those are the neural connections that get strengthened. Those are the ones that become the part of our belief systems, and that is ultimately how we develop as, as a person. So in a sense, uh, there's, a, there's a conditioning process that goes on with the brain. I mean, Skinner would call yeah. it conditioning. You know, fire together, wire together is a repetition that builds this pattern. Uh, one of my favorite lectures uh, in the entire course, sir, was uh, your lecture on myth. And and I suppose to understand that, for our audience, I'm going to have to ask you to, you know, kind of unpack what myth is and then compare that to why you think science is a form of myth today. Well, well, from my perspective, what we really mean by a myth, and, and I, unfortunately myth is often taken a very negative kind of term. We talk about like the myths of dieting, and then they talk about the people who offer all these you know, kind of strange dieting books to, to get people to lose weight, and they talk about, well, it's just a myth. But when we really look at how anthropologists have looked at the concept of myth over the years, 
A myth is really a story that we tell about our world that helps us to make sense about that world. And so, of course, religious and spiritual beliefs tend to be considered myth, but it's really a form of a belief. It's a story that we use to explain our world. And so our brain is always creating these mythic stories to help us understand the world. And and part of how I think that the mythic process works is that we wind up having some kind of issue, some problem that needs to be resolved. Often it comes in the form of an opposite. Uh, So it might be the opposites of right and wrong, or in the context of religion, it might be the opposite of, of God and human beings. And then the question is, how do we bridge that opposite? How do we resolve that problem? And that seems to happen in the mythic story. The, the story itself kind of brings together these two opposites that helps us to, to understand what those opposites are and how they work and, and, and how that uh, ultimately tells us something about who we should be as human beings, how we are as human beings. And we can also reflect on the different areas of the brain that are involved, the areas of the brain that set, us, set apart these opposites, the holistic areas of our brain that bring them together, and the abstract areas of our brain that put them together ultimately into a story that makes sense to us. Now, so for me, I mean, obviously the religious and spiritual beliefs are a part of myth-making that we have, but science also is a story about the world. That There are elements of science which you know, one, one would, should ask, well, why? You know, why do we feel that science should do things in a certain way? There's, there's a predilection of scientists to think that the simplest answer is the, is the best answer. Why? I mean, clearly there are reasons why that could be, but why is it always the case? And maybe sometimes a more complicated answer is a better answer. Uh, sometimes a more holistic one is a better answer than a reductive one. And so, uh, but science ultimately is a way for us to understand the world, it is the brain of a scientist making sense of the world around us, using information to tell that story. And it's obviously, obviously it relies on a slightly different form of information than what a religious myth may, may rely on. But ultimately, it's our brain's attempt at understanding the world and telling a story about that and trying to figure out the best way to make sense of that world. And so for me, since scientists are human beings too, we're all, again, we're all in the same boat. Some of us have come to a spiritual conclusion, and some of us have come to a scientific one. Okay, and so we can fairly say, if I if I reduce what you just discussed in the last two questions, that the brain is conditioned or can be conditioned, and the brain is a story machine. So if we reinforce the story, we'll condition the brain to further believe that story. So now... Have I got that right? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we go into the real world with this wonderful equipment. And, uh, you know, there are some very real effects that we deal with. You know, one of those effects uh, is rituals. Now, you talk about rituals and their rhythmic, repetitive regularity within the construct or within the confines, I suppose, of church, religion. But it also goes on in state. I mean, we can have a a public speaker whose cadence, uh, positioning, uh, background, etc., can, can even produce what I've called group hypnosis. Tell us about the power this has on the brain to condition it further. You're talking about how how people how the different people who we interact with who we listen to can affect our brain. Well, no, I was talking more about I mean that too, but I was talking more about 
you know, how rhythmic, uh, oh, the re- repetitive information, the kind that mm. you find as a ritual within a church. Um, sure. So the, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that, um, part of how our whole, br- our whole brain works is through the process of rhythm. Uh, you know, if you slap, uh, electrodes onto our brain, you see the electrical rhythm of the brain. Different parts of our body are always in rhythm, our heart rate, our respiratory rate, and so forth. So our body responds to rhythms, and when it comes to our sense of uh, under, our ability to understand the world and to make sense of the world, different rhythmic inputs really have a, a profound effect on our brain, on our body. So uh, you mentioned, for example, the rituals that we take place. I mean, part of how we understand the importance of rituals is that rhythmicity. It, these rhythms drive our brain and create experiences within our brain that can be very, very powerful. And of course, the type of rhythm can be very important too. If it's a, a very slow rhythm, then it might be something that generates a very profound feeling of calmness and, and, and blissfulness for the individual. If it's a very fast rhythm, uh, it might be something that creates a very uh, kind of activated state in the brain. But what's also important is how these rhythms, because they take uh, place in the context of certain ideas, certain stories, certain myths, they help to make those ideas not just something that is understood, but something that we feel viscerally deep inside. It's something that changes the way in which our whole body reacts to the world around us. So these rituals can be very, very important. They they drive the brain. They write these different ideas and concepts into the brain's functions, and it becomes uh, an essential element for helping the brain interact with the world around us and make sense of that world. And, and when it works together in the context of a, a concept of myth, then these rituals become something that uh, really cr- help to create our sense of reality. And, and, and again, you know, we've had this uh, as kind of a theme running through the discussion today, the notion that these don't even necessarily have to be religious and spiritual. I mean, there are plenty of non-religious rituals that are also very important and affect our brain, and these could be rituals related to country, rituals related to a football game, you know, whatever it is, all of these different rituals have an impact on on how our brain works and change the way we interact with the world around us uh, in very powerful and very compelling ways. Physically change the brain. That's that's the statement you're making. Yes, absolutely. I want to go there now, repetitive. Um, Mantras, um, attenuated uh, or accompanied, I should say, with, uh, you know, uh, finger movement. Uh, The the word is slipping out of my mind right this Uh, time. Mudras. Yeah, thank you, mudras. Um, You you conducted a research study where you looked at a 12-minute meditation that used the repetitive... Mudra and mantra system that physically changed the brain. Tell us about that. So one of the things that uh, we started to take a look at, and uh, and actually we mentioned this study earlier uh, as well, the idea that there's a difference in the brain between those people who have been engaged in religious and spiritual activities and practices compared to those people who are non-religious. The problem with that study, and there have been several other individuals who have done studies as well who have looked at you know, long-term meditators versus non-meditators, as an example, and find differences. The problem with all these studies is that we're capturing these people at a particular moment in time, and it is after the fact. It is after they have done these practices. So when we see these differences in the brain, 
the, the first chicken and the egg question that comes about in my mind is, so are the brains different because they had done these practices for so many years, or were these brains different originally, and that's why these practices became a very important part of how the person led their lives. So we decided to design a study where we looked at people longitudinally, where we took people who had never really meditated before and started them on a mantra-based practice, as you mentioned, included repeating certain phrases over and over and moving their fingers as they did it. We had them do this for 12 minutes a day, and we had them do it for eight weeks, and we scanned them before and after. And what we found were some very dramatic changes in how the brain worked. So when people come back after eight weeks of doing this kind of practice, their frontal lobe activity is different. If you remember from earlier in the discussion, the frontal lobes help us to control our emotions and help us to concentrate better. So the fact that they had higher levels of activity in their frontal lobe implies that this kind of a practice can help their mind work better, uh, help them to think better, and actually help to regulate their emotions better. And in fact, we did measure that just clinically when we asked, when we did various types of memory tests, they actually had improvements in their memory, uh, as well as improvements in their levels of anxiety and depression. So it regulated all of those different kinds of things. We also noted changes in, uh, the, in the thalamus, that very central structure we also talked about earlier, that regulates our consciousness and our perceptions of reality. Well, again, if in eight weeks we are able to change the way the thalamus works, one can only imagine what's happening in the brain of a nun who's done these kinds of practices for 50 years, how that's changed her brain and how it's changed her perception of reality. And so that's why when we talk about how God changes your brain, how these practices change your brain, there are these very profound effects that can change the way we are, change the way we think. And, and this is also why when we're talking about kind of the, the positive versus the negative, we know that if we engage in these kinds of positive activities, activities and practices that foster compassion, reduce stress, reduce depression and anxiety, then those are the kinds of connections that form in the brain, strengthen in the brain, and, and become the way our brain actually works and thinks. So there is this growing evidence now that these practices uh, are very powerful in being able to change the way we are as people. And so we can start to find the most effective ways of embracing these kinds of practices and utilizing them to the benefit of who we are, to make us remember things better, to be able to multitask better, to be less depressed, less stressed. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I think, again, we're sort of still at the very uh, – we, we've learned a lot, but we're still at the earlier stages of this, and we have a long way to go in terms of learning which are the practices that may be the best, the most effective. But from from my vantage point, the main thing that I always try to tell people is that whatever you wind up doing, find a practice that you like, find a practice that's consistent with your beliefs, uh, that is something that you can fully engage because those are the practices that tend to really have the greatest impact. If you're if you're doing a meditation study just because you want to f- improve your memory, it's probably not going to work nearly as well as a meditation practice that you truly believe in and you feel is going to work and that you feel is a part of your overall uh, belief system, maybe a spiritual belief system, a scientific one, but it's something that you can fully take part in take part in, and those are the kinds of practices that are going to have the biggest effect. Right. Well, all meditation need not be religious, as you point out. And there are great cognitive advantages to it, uh, gains to be made. Uh, It isn't just about rewiring the brain or increasing uh, gray matter, etc. You you know, unfortunately, we are getting really short time here, and I've got a (laughs) 
pack of questions to ask you. Um, so I, I guess I'm just, just going to have to bring me back. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I'd love to do that. We will do sure. that. You can count on it. Uh, in in the few minutes that we do have, what I would like you to do, if you need a few minutes, if you take about one minute to tell everybody how they can reach out to you, your website, uh, learn more about your books, uh, if you're speaking engagements, uh, and so forth. Uh, well, I mean, the best way to kind of follow my work is through my website, which is just www.andrewnewberg.com. Newberg is N-E-W-B-E-R-G. Uh, and, and on there I have, uh, I try to post my research articles when I can so people can take a look at those. Uh, there's information about the different books and certainly uh, people who want to learn more about it. As you mentioned, the, the teaching company uh, lecture series, that, that to me was a really wonderful opportunity to kind of uh, – create a, a portrait of where we are today and, uh, and to help uh, people understand what neurotheology is about, what this whole interaction is between the brain and our spiritual cells, uh, and, and, and try to help people learn that and, and figure that out. So that, that's a great opportunity for people to look at. And then uh, the books, and some of the books are more popularly oriented, some of them are more academically oriented, depending on what people's interests are. But uh, I always hope, I, I think the main thing I hope, as I said, is to sort of pass on that passion for inquiry to other people and to get them to ask the questions and, and not be afraid of them. They're, some, they're great questions. You know, we're not going to get the answers to, to a lot of them, but they're fun to, to engage. They're fun to think about. I'm and, sorry. Uh, we are flat out of time. You do a great job at feeding that inquiry, and I want to thank you for your work you. and your willingness to share it all with us, Dr. Newberg. We will bring you back. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. All right, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.